to me, it's a dream. And we have been talking about it, you know, internally, our groups within the Olympic Authority. We already do this stuff, right? The Olympic Authority is set up to preserve that Olympic history and promote it and develop it and make sure that our venues are up to those highest standards. So for us to not think about doing it again, I think is a little crazy, honestly, and it's a dream of ours. Welcome to the storm. I'm host, Stuart Winchester, finishing out 2023 with the most famous ski area in my home state and a conversation that many of you have been asking for since day one. Whiteface will be waiting for us in a moment. Real quick, if you are a paid subscriber, thank you. You are listening to this conversation seven full days before free subscribers. I very much appreciate you and your commitment to independent ski journalism. If you are not a paid subscriber yet, look, I get it. We all have limited resources and we all have choices to make on how to deploy those resources. I do appreciate you listening and your support of the storm. However, I want you to know that there are benefits to upgrading to a paid subscription. Not only do you get new pods a week in advance, but you get the full text of every Storm Skiing Journal article, which typically is about 80% of what I publish. The top of each article, just so you know, is only a preview. And remember, when you upgrade to paid, you are helping to ensure the future of ski journalism that is about more than stoke and bro culture. In other words, the lift serve skiing world that 99% of us actually inhabit and actually care about. And if you're not subscribed yet at all, free or paid, you can do that at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on X, formerly Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Storm Ski Journal. All right. Before we get to Whiteface, I want to talk about Hotronics ski boot, foot warmers, and heated socks. You know what I love? Skiing. You know what I hate? Cold feet. My feet get cold pretty much no matter what, and I used to just suffer through it. I don't anymore. Why? I hooked myself up with some Hotronic XLPC foot warmers in my ski boots. If you've had Hotronics before, you should know that the updated C-Series is the very best on the market. With a new, larger anatomical shape, but with smaller, lighter batteries that perform in temperatures down to 22 degrees below zero. Or, if you're looking for a less intrusive solution, consider Hotronic XLP heated socks. These socks offer the best size to capacity ratio and longevity on the market with up to 18 hours of continuous heating power, and they will fit into your existing ski boots with no issue. And here's an awesome feature, I love this. This new generation of Hotronics products is Bluetooth enabled, meaning you can manage them from the Hotronic heat app. It's time to ditch the tough guy mentality. Skiing should not be an exercise in managing discomfort. Hook yourself up with Hotronics boot warmers or heated socks this ski season. Click the link in the banner on the podcast article to get started. And when you're ready for those new boots, please, please do not order them from Amazon. I know a lot of you are do-it-yourself types, but one thing you should never do yourself is fit your own ski boots. Trust me, please go to a trained professional. And might I suggest, as that trained professional, the team at the Pro Ski and Ride in Hunter, New York, The Pro Ski and Ride is a full-service ski and snowboard shop 
providing specialty services and equipment to skiers and riders from all across the United States. You know how I first heard about the pros at Pro Ski and Ride? I was on a ski club trip at Alta Snowbird with a dude who lives in New Jersey who had heard about the pro several years before from a skier based in Utah. And he said, how good does a boot fitter from New York have to be that a guy in Utah uses him? So I made an appointment. That was several years ago, and I've been going back to the Pro Ski and Ride ever since. You can go to theproskiandride.com to book an online appointment with Kathy or Geo today. They will help you identify the perfect boots, set you up with custom footbeds, or even adjust boots that you bought elsewhere. My wife battled boot pain for years. We finally took her boots that she had purchased elsewhere to the Pro, and on our recent trip out west, when she cracked those things out for the first time since the adjustments, she was more comfortable and confident than she has ever been. Stop fighting with your boots and stop suffering on the slopes. Make your appointment with the Pro Ski and Ride at theproskiandride.com today. The place is just a few minutes down the road from Hunter Mountain, so if you have an epic pass, you can stop in for a few turns to test your boots out right away and stop back in for any adjustments. All right, big thanks to my sponsors. Now on to episode 158, Aaron Kellett, General Manager of Whiteface Mountain, New York. There's a persistent, but frankly, pretty stupid misconception that Eastern Mountains don't compare to the West in vertical drop. If you think that's true, let's talk about Whiteface, which at 3,166 vertical feet, or 3,430 feet if you're willing to hike and the slides are open, gives you not just the largest vertical drop in the east, but one of the largest in the country. If Whiteface were in the great ski state of California, it would own the state's second largest vertical drop after only Heavenly, which, yes, means that Whiteface delivers more vert than Mammoth Mountain or Palisades Tahoe. That's also, by the way, more vert than Copper Mountain, Keystone, Winter Park, Alta, Deer Valley, or Snow Basin, and nearly as much lift serve vert as Snowbird or Park City. So let's show some respect for this incredible New York mountain, which is one of just a handful of U.S. ski areas to ever host the Winter Olympics. Whiteface is one of those ski areas that everyone ought to see at least once. An Eastern all-star, a one-of-a-kind brute that simultaneously gives you one of the best family ski zones in the region, and one of the greatest expert zones in American skiing. And with the truckloads of money that New York has been pumping into this state-owned ski area over the past decade or so, it is also one of the fastest evolving operations in the country. It's changing so fast, actually, that if you haven't been to Whiteface in a while, you really haven't been there at all. So let's go. My guest today has been general manager of Whiteface Mountain, New York, since 2012 with a lift-served vertical drop of 3,166 feet and an overall skiable vertical drop of 3,430 feet, Whiteface is the tallest ski area in the eastern United States. The mountain hosted all alpine ski events for the 1980 Winter Olympics. Prior to taking the top job in 2012, he was Whiteface's operations manager from 2009 to 2012 and the Terrain Park Manager from 2005 to 2009. He joined the mountain as a freestyle coach 25 years ago in 1998, 
Aaron Kellett is my guest. Aaron, welcome to the storm. It looks like Whiteface is off to an absolutely incredible start to the 2023-24 ski season. How are you doing today, Aaron? I am doing great, Stuart. Thank you for having me. We're in a really awesome spot up the mountain, and um, spirits are really high around here. Yeah, wasn't necessarily a, a super early opening by Whiteface standards. You cracked open the day after Thanksgiving, and often Whiteface will open the week before. But wow, you've really just been shot out of a cannon since then. Tell us how good this early season has been up at Whiteface. We have been in an awesome place. We saw an early season climate trends to be colder up high. So, you know, early on in mid-November, we were able to really pound snow up high. We, we were definitely warmer down low, and um, that was what caused us to not open a week early. But once we got those dots connected for Thanksgiving weekend, we were skiing top to bottom with additional terrain on the summit that we didn't even have last year. So great spot, great early season. So Whiteface will often open before Thanksgiving. What was the difference between a year when you're able to do that in this year, is, does it all just come down to temps or are there other factors you have to consider as well? It's primarily the weather. It's There are other factors. It, it's a long way from the top of weight face to the bottom. So that stretch okay. of, of snowmaking terrain, is it's a lot for sure. But we have the capacity to do it. And if we have Mother Nature on our side down low, we're able to connect the dots early. Um, unfortunately, we were opening as our scheduled day, the day after Thanksgiving, um, and not a week earlier, but we opened up with a great product and, and we're proud of where we were. It seems to me that you have more terrain open right now than would be typical for we're recording this for folks listening. We're recording this on December 8th and the terrain footprint you have live right now seems more like what you would have toward the end of December from my point of view. Is that true? Or, or, or how, how is things looking on the mountain it, from your point of view compared to the nor normal? You know, it's it's a totally different than it was even three years ago, just for from our perspective. We historically focused on the gondola down to the bottom, and that's what we focused on for opening weekend. But with our improvements in our snowmaking system, we've been able to broaden our, our vision here with what we can do at Whiteface. And we've been able to start at the top of the mountain, go right to the bottom. And since we started doing that, it really allows us to branch out earlier than, than usual. So I would say we're in a spot where we would normally be in going into Christmas, you know, normally going into Christmas prior to three years ago, we were, we were focusing on getting the summit open, but uh, being able to do that early has been, been huge for us and huge for the mountains progression going into Christmas. So yeah, we're ahead. So would you say the summit, Aaron, just to orient this for listeners who may not be as familiar with the mountain, there's kind of two or three peaks that you deal with. It's Little Whiteface, Whiteface, and, and Lookout Mountain. So when you say the summit, you're talking about that terrain that goes up Whiteface Mountain, not all the way to the top, not the slides, which we'll talk about later, but the top of the summit quad. Yeah, that's what we're, we're talking about. We're focusing on that area more early season than we have ever. So to talk about those snowmaking improvements a little bit, Aaron. This is something that Orta, the Olympic Regional Development Authority, which oversees Whiteface, and we'll talk about them in a bit, Something that they've really focused on and, and that I know you really focused on for the preparation for the World University Games last year. Just from a, a big picture view, what can you tell us about how much better Whiteface's snowmaking system has gotten over the past couple of years and how you went about doing that? 
Well, it was a monster project um, and it had many different phases that we built in. We basically started with our water withdrawal at the river. Whiteface is allowed to draw 6,000 gallons a minute out of the river. And we knew that the root of the system was driven from the river pump house. So that was where we focused. But the bigger picture of all of it was changing our snowmaking system from a low pressure system to high pressure system. And what that allows us to do is implement more low energy snow guns in more locations. Our system prior to the high pressure system, we, we were very limited in when we could run low energy snow guns. So now we have the ability to run them everywhere. And we've really seen a big difference in our ability to utilize our 6,000 gallon minute, a minute of water, as well as being significantly more efficient. So we're able to spread out and run more guns at the same time. So that's been the biggest change. And the second biggest change with all of it is we've pretty much doubled our capacity above our mid-station area. So the upper mountain, we were only able to run around 3,000 gallons a minute historically. Now we're able to run 6,000 gallons above our legacy lodge. So that's been huge for us too. So we've been able to focus on the summit and getting some of that upper mountain terrain open earlier especially when the conditions are right up high early season. And that's it's been a huge factor for our success. Can you give us a ballpark, Aaron, on the size of your snowmaking system by number of guns and, and, and what percentage of that fleet is now high efficiency? Sure. Yeah. So we, we have around 1,200 hydrants on the mountain. So about 1,200 different locations we can make snow at Wayface. And we have about 600 low energy guns. So approximately half of our our snowmaking locations are now a fixed low energy tower gun that um, allows us to pivot faster as well as be more efficient. So pretty significant impacts for us. As you look to the future, do you think there's always going to be a place for hydrants or is there going to be a day when every gun on Whiteface is fixed? I think it's really challenging at Whiteface to have a fixed gun everywhere, mainly from the standpoint of lifts. You know, it's it's hard to implement fixed tech, fixed gun technology when you have ski lifts there, right? So we have certain terrain that have ski lifts right along the pipeline side of the trail that we really can't get there with fixed gun, um, low energy guns. But what we're looking at in the future is is investing more in the low energy mobile technology which is which is there. And that's kind of how we're going to overcome that. Aaron, do you have any trails that don't have hydrants, that don't have guns, that are all natural snow waves, excluding the slides, excluding the glades, obviously? Yeah, we do. We have a, a trail called the Empire, and it's, it's a, a favorite of a lot of locals. It's a nice little narrow shoot, expert trail, all natural snow. And uh, we've been able to get it open quite a bit lately. And it's, <laughs> it's just really unique. It's, it's got a lot of natural features and it's narrow and it's, it's different than everything else. You know, it's not your typical flat, straight, wide trail. So it's a lot of fan favorites around here is the Empire. I, I love that, Aaron. And, and for locals who are listening to this, who may be worried about it? It sounds like you're pretty committed to keeping no to keeping snowmaking off of Empire. We're trying to fight it as much as we can, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds like you're the guy in charge, so I'll take that as a positive sign. You know, looking at the other end of the season, Aaron Whiteface has also been able to stretch the season 
You spun the lifts into May, both in 2018 and in 2022. Couldn't quite pull it off in 2023. What does it take to keep the mountain open that late into the season? And is that an annual goal that your team has? You know, a lot of it, just like anything, is weather-driven, obviously. Um, We do our best to wrap up our snowmaking season by making some of that spring snow. You know, we try to put snow in the bank on some of those bread and butter trails that we know we need to have to get back down to the bottom of the mountain. If we're seeing freezing temperatures in April at night, even if it's just a little bit, it goes a long way in preserving that that route down. So, you know, that's really our focus. We'll try to get we'll try to get narrow, we'll try to get deep on some of those important veins to the base of the mountain. And when we can do that and we get that little help from mother nature, we're able to prolong it. Have you set a closing date for 2024 or do you just see how it goes and then set that later in the spring? No, we usually just see how it goes. Historically, we'd said we're going to be open every day going into Easter. And uh, we it's just not something we focus on anymore. We we just kind of be a ski resort for as long as we can. Weather cooperating, we're, we'll keep going. I mean, it's a big mountain. There's a lot of ways you could do this. In order to be open, do you like to have top to bottom? Have you ever done anything where you have people upload the cloud splitter gondola ski around on little white face then download at the end of the day you know with this new notch quad could you maybe run that little bit of it in the spring what's your what's your thinking around the the minimum viable product that you like to offer yeah we like to have the bottom but we have in may before had like you just said people can ride the gondola ski down to our legacy lodge area hop on the little white face and then ride back down the gondola but it's always best if we can get to the bottom but the notch definitely presents some new unique opportunities for early and late season at Whiteface. So we're excited about that and figuring that out and um, ex- extending our season with it. Yeah, let's talk about the notch, Aaron. This is an awesome machine, a new high-speed quad with an angle station. And th- this is always one of the most impactful things that a ski resort can do, which is to add a new lift to existing terrain. A lot of times a new lift will either replace an old lift or it will serve all new terrain, both of which are cool. But when you put a new lift on existing terrain, it can uniquely change the way a resort feels and skis. So tell us about the notch, where this lift loads and lands, and why you chose this location to invest in this new chairlift. Yeah, so the notch starts over at the Bearden area and it ties in at the Legacy Lodge area. So in the past, even when I was a kid growing up here, we had a lift that went to the same location, but it originated on the main side of the mountain. One of Whiteface's big problems historically is that connection between our our beginner beginner area at Bearden, which we've really invested heavily the past few years with new lifts, new carpets, new lodge, but we still had some of that disconnect between the main side and the bare den side. And we were trying to overcome it with sh- better shuttle systems and having snow sports school on both sides and having, you know, rental shops on both sides, but we really were never able to, to tie them together well. And, you know, just with what we've been able to accomplish at bare den, it made sense to, be able to offer terrain and easy access to terrain that a family might want. You know, you may have people in the family that are expert skiers 
and then you have beginners. And the way we were set up before, we basically had people at two different lodges to accommodate the, the different skier types. And being able to bridge that gap with the notch was is huge for us. So you, now the, the family that has expert skiers can be based at the same lodge with the beginners and be able to get out of there quick and easy. So it really ties that whole group together and it offers a lot for us. And, you know, really the thinking of it was, was a lot of revolving around that. And for years, for years, we've been trying to also bridge the gap in progression and learning to ski at Whiteface. We have this amazing beginner area at Baradan. It's got a quad, it's got two magic carpets. They're essentially brand new, new snowmaking system. It's got, I think, seven trails. And it's really an amazing place to learn. And it's a a step away from the the main mountain, right? So we don't have that expert wisdom by the beginner. But once you get past that level three in your skiing development, it it was a big jump. You know, you you skied out of Bear Den and you came down to uh, the Warhorse lift and then you had some other, you know, good beginner train. But from there, you're on the facelift. And that's a really big jump when you're trying to teach somebody how to ski. So... Uh, this helps bridge that gap as well. So this, the notch, takes off at the Bear Den area for folks who are familiar with Whiteface. And then it comes up the mountain and then it, it hits an angle station. And that's a skiers can actually unload there. And that, that's a, a fairly rare to have a high speed lift that slows down where you can unload. And then it continues up to the mid station. So talk about those two points, Aaron. And take us into your thinking as you decided where that midstation would go and ultimately where the lift would unload. Because I imagine you could have taken it farther up the mountain if you wanted to. Yeah, we, we could have taken it farther up the mountain. But the benefits of, of having it terminate at the Legacy Lodge are huge. You know, multiple season reasons as well. You know, we can get people now to the, the Legacy Lodge, new Legacy Lodge in the summer, which is, opens up a whole new world of business for us. And, you know, when we were looking at, we knew that's kind of what we wanted to accomplish with a new lift. We knew we needed to do something at Bearden to accommodate that higher level skier. And when we were trying to draw lines on a map to put a lift from Bearden somewhere else on the mountain, it was difficult. Weightface only has a couple paths down to the bottom of the mountain. And there's, you know, other ridges and mountains around us. So drawing a straight line from Bearden to Legacy Lodge or anywhere up the mountain further, you, you had to go up and down other small mountains. So, you know, if, we, if you took a straight line from where the new notch starts to where it ends, you went up a 300 vertical foot mountain with a bald summit that is exposed to the elements. And, you know, that was a big driving force on making it turn, honestly, Stuart. But when you think about it, it also allows us to create another level of learning progression. So that lower level group, now they don't need to ski out of Bearden to go to the, the Warhorse lift. They can stay at Bearden and now hit their next step in skiing progression from the new notch lift. So it opens up a lot of new exciting options for skiers and, and general public. I mean, from an engineering point of view, how much trickier was this construction project with that lift station, even with all the benefits it brings, because that adds just a whole new engineering challenge. Was that a smooth process? Or what was that process like of adding that mid station? Boy, it was it was pretty challenging. Finding a location that's flat on Whiteface is, is 
was pretty difficult too. Yeah. <laughs> something that we needed to try to find and luckily everything lined up properly on the boreen trail. So we had a, a flatter area that was perfect to turn the lift and get it to the legacy lodge. But it, that mid station terminal also required us to do quite a bit of trail work on the boreen to accommodate that, you know, we're, we're losing 30 foot of trail right there now. So we had to do uh, quite a bit of blasting and trail work next to the terminal to make sure that we had enough space for people to ski around that new terminal. You know, engineering wise, we, we have some great partners and they have some experience with this. There's not a lot of experience with a detachable lift that has a mid terminal that also detaches, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're working with the best in the world here and, you know, they put the best team on it and we were able to get it, get it all worked out, get the trail work done. And tomorrow we're going to offer the the lift to the world. So we're excited about it. So one big advantage of this lift, Aaron, I have to imagine is that it should hopefully redistribute skiers over to the Bear Den base and take a little pressure off of facelift and the gondola. Is that the hope here? Yeah, uh, definitely. We want to redistribute them. We want to see, we want to see it busy at both sides, but you know, we think we're going to be able to offer more appropriate terrain for people as well, which will also help help things flow better. We had a lot of people that are a little over their head on the facelift because that's one of the closest lifts to the base lodge and it's got intermediate terrain off of it and a beginner trail off of it. But even even that, it's it's pretty long. So on top of spreading them out, we're also going to get them on more appropriate terrain so they can, it, everything doesn't get bunched up in that manner as well. So we, we do expect to see the facelift to, uh, to move a little faster with the lines, definitely. So the notch, as we said, follows a really interesting line. And one thing I've learned, Aaron, is the lift you build is rarely the only lift that you considered. Curious if you would be willing to share with us some of the other lift configurations that you might have considered for the notch did you consider a six pack did you consider a lift that might have gone higher on the mountain lower on the mountain straight up the mountain no angle station just what can you share with us around the different options that you considered for the notch and how you ultimately landed on a high speed four pack with an angle station landing at the mid lodge sure yeah you know one of our goals you know it was a loose goal a few years ago but it it was to, to get people to the mid station area again and you know that was really the root of our planning how can we get people from the base area to mid station so originally we were looking at the main side of whiteface creating another back in the 80s and 90s we had a lift called the mid station shuttle and it was a double lift that was based out of where the the facelift is now so when the facelift was installed in 2001, at that time, we had a triple with a mid station that went to the base of the summit lift. And right next to it, we had a double that ended that mid station. So we had five seats going from the main side of the mountain to the mid station area. In looking at just our customer, we knew that with what we were seeing trend wise and, and where people were heading and where people wanted to be from just you know, surveys, we knew that the most logical link was from the Bearden area. You know, most of the main side, and we were, we're progressing, we're trying to change our trend to get that learn to ski out of the main side and over to Bearden. So that link, 
then became more important. So we looked at the configuration next to the facelift with kind of creating that same double triple scenario again. We we didn't like that. You know, we didn't think it was meeting all of our goals and it was going to service our guest as well as moving it over to the other side. So, you know, we looked at a couple different alignments. We looked at a couple different alignments at Bearden as well, you know, just before we came to our, our conclusion. And we got to that terminal location by really figuring out where people were going to be skiing, right? You know, we wanted to get it close to the lodge. We know the longer we have somebody walking from the lodge to a lift, the more frustrated they get. You know, everybody wants to be close to where they're going with their skis on. So we wanted to make it close to that lodge because we looked at putting it further down the hill towards the, the base area. And we looked at moving it uphill, but it was important for us to keep it close to the new Baradan Lodge and keep the load height the same as the, the grade of the floor in the lodge. So it's actually the same grade, which is nice. You don't have to walk uphill, put your skis on, and you're pretty much right at the, the corral of the, the notch. And uh, those were kind of the driving factors for the bottom terminal. When we were looking at just capacity configurations, in that world, for us, we have you know, some common lifts here already. You know, we, we have components on the lookout lift, the facelift, and the gondola that are similar. You know, we've got some similar grips there. We've got some similar components in our terminals and our drive stations. So we wanted to be able to try to keep everything as common as possible. And we felt that the quad configuration really, we, we were able to have some more unity between our different lift components. And um, that helped drive us, drive us towards the quad. So at what point during this planning process did that mid-lodge burn down? Was that before and then you decide, and then you designed the lift around that? Or were you thinking about this back in, I think it was 2018, 2019, and then the lodge burned down and you were like, well, I, I guess this is a chance to rebuild the lodge exactly with the lift in mind. W were those processes interconnected at all? Um, no. We'd been thinking about this lift for, for quite a few years, actually. Okay. The, the hard part was finding that top terminal and the coordination between the Bear Den rebuild and the, the rebrand and the development with the mid-station fire really helped guide us towards where we want to put the bottom terminal. You know, So they were independent, but it, it definitely was a factor in where we were putting that top terminal. And it helped move this lift project up the list, right? We now are, we're investing in this beautiful brand new lodge. We want to get more people in it. So that helped move the notch project up in our priority world. And as you rebuilt that lodge, did you think about, okay, this is where the lift's going to land. Maybe we should move the lodge from its former foundation to a different place to make it more accessible. Were those things related at all? You know, not really that area there weren't a lot of great locations for a lodge so at that time we looked at where the lodge was and it was right in the middle of the trail the main trail that people ski by so we had people skiing around a narrow steep chute to get past the mid station and and it was honestly it was it was scary to that beginner skier so we knew we needed to move that lodge it just was not in the right location to accommodate our guest so now a beginner can take the notch lift straight up to the middle of the mountain. Then they can ski all green terrain on the way back down. I want to talk a little bit here, Aaron, about 
how you thought about the towers on this lift. I know the modern thinking around lift placement is wherever possible, folks try not to run the lift, the towers directly up the middle of a run anymore. But you had to do a little bit of that, I think, just because of the way that the fall lines are on this mountain. So just talk a little bit about the tower placement and how you thought about balancing where the lift needed to go with the demographic of skiers that you expect to be having to dodge around those towers. Yeah, for sure. And a big part of it is also dealing with the environmental elements that we have there too. You know, there's a couple stream crossings, there's, there's a pitch, you know, that we, when the, the profile was originally proposed to us, you know, we saw that we had a tower right in the middle of this pitch that we, we didn't really like. So safety was our guiding factor with it. So the process went, okay, this is where we want to put this lift. And then the, the lift manufacturer, Doppelmayr, came back with a proposal and it lined out you know, where all the towers were. We went through, took a look, put some stakes in the ground where the tower proposals were. And some of them were in a stream. You know, they're, they're just, that consideration <laughs> isn't necessarily there when they're developing that profile of the lift. They were putting the right. towers in the, in the locations that were easiest and made the most sense from an engineering perspective just to develop the lift. So, you know, we went through and really took a, a good close look at it, you know, where the towers were going to be in relation to important spots in the trail where it might be steep before it gets flat, or we wanted to move it up downhill a little bit to give enough room on the side of a tower to get a groomer around. You know, those are, those are considerations that we ended up going and, and dealing with. And basically it's a back and forth process to you come up with the best option for the lift. And I think it worked out pretty well. So I want to rewind a little bit here in 2020, you upgraded the Falcon flyer lift. That's a, that's a fixed quad out of the Bear Dan base area. In 2021, you upgraded Warhorse, which replaced a couple of old fixed grip doubles with a nice new fixed grip quad over on the main base area. And then now this year, you're putting in the notch. That essentially, from my point of view, completely redefines the beginner experience at Whiteface, plus those new carpets that you mentioned in just a couple of years. If folks haven't been to Whiteface in a few years, Aaron, say five years since before COVID and before those lifts came in, how different is that beginner experience, novice experience going to be for them today than it was even five years ago? Uh, it's substantially different. All of these lift improvements, they're great and they're glamorous. They make the magazine covers and they, they look awesome. And we'll, we'll talk, we talk about, you know, the detachable high speed and the, the six packs, eight packs, four packs, whatever. You know, one of the most important things for a ski resort and what they're looking at when they're replacing an old lift is the reliability, right? You know, if you can't reliably have that machine running, it's time to think about replacing it. So for us, those lifts over there, they work great. We have experience with them. Even the the Falcon lift, it's essentially a, a lot of the same components as the Summit lift. It's a, it's designed by the manufacturer that created SeaTech, um, SkyTrack. So our staff have experience with that lift and it runs. We don't see issues with this new machinery. And it's it's such a different world for us. You know, we always battled that lift over at Bearden. So the, the lift prior to the Falcon was uh, actually the, the first lift that went to the Summit of Whiteface. It was a 1986 riblet. And then in 1996, that 1986 riblet was replaced and put over at Bearden. 
So being able to gain that reliability, you know, they guests can know they can go over there. They're, the lifts are going to function. We've got a, an amazing snowmaking system over there where we can just, in a couple of days, pretty much open up everything over at Verdun. And that's different for us. And it's different for the guest. And we built this amazing support system with the lodges and the restaurants over there to offer everything that the beginner and expert skier would want now. So it's awesome to have all these improvements and all of this new technology and new equipment. And it just works. It's so it's such a breath of fresh air to not have to worry about it. And how, how deliberate was that decision to invest heavily in the beginner experience? Because the upper mountain lifts are essentially the same as they were in that period I referenced five years ago or so. And Whiteface has this reputation as a tough mountain with some steep terrain and long, long fall lines. It didn't always have that reputation as a good beginner mountain. Now, looking at this, I think it looks like one of the best beginner mountains in the East. I mean, like I just said, you have three brand new lifts, well, chair lifts and two carpets giving you access to, you know, over a dozen nice, long, winding green runs. I mean, this is, you can have a great, great time at Whiteface as a beginner and never go above mid-mountain. So how deliberate was that in saying, okay, if we truly want this to be a family mountain, we really need to offer a better green level skier experience? Uh, It was completely deliberate. It started before the new lifts, before the development at Bearden. We knew we, we needed to get people over on the the easier side of Whiteface. That that Bearden area over there is pretty secluded and the terrain is perfect for learning. So before the even the investment in the area happened, we knew we needed to change its name. So the name of the Bearden used to be called the Kids Campus. As an adult or a family, does that work for you to go, I, I want to go learn to ski with a bunch of little kids over in this area <laughs> that's designed just for children? So the adults were over here on the main side getting their butt kicked while the kids are over on the the kids' campus side having the time of their lives on the best green that you could have for skiing. So, you know, it started before investment. We invested in just the concept of turning that into where we want everyone to go to learn to ski. And, you know, it took a little while to get there just traditionally with the with the staff. And, you know, we still have plenty of staff that still call it kids' campus, but that change started, we knew it needed to happen so long ago. And um, we're really fortunate to have the support of it. And the first real big project over there was the lodge. And that was a, a really big project. And once we did that, we just saw an immediate impact in visitation over there. So we saw an immediate shift of, you know, from 10%, of, it used to be 15%, 85%, Baird uh, End side to Main side, that first year we were running around 70 30. Oh, wow. That instant shift really opened our eyes like, okay, this is what people want. That that first year that we, we built the new lodge, we saw a 300% increase in food service revenue at, oh, wow. at the Baird End. So, um, you know, we're always going to be a big kick ass mountain, right? You can't change that. We're starting to adapt and change into that family-friendly place. That's where the work is right now. And you, and you can be both. And and I think the best mountains are both, and they offer 
a family, everything they could want. So we happen to be recording this on December 8th. The notch lift will open on December 9th. So by the time folks hear this, that lift will be open. I mean, it's an incredible machine, an incredibly expensive machine. And I want to underscore that though this was built in a summer, right? In, in your off season. And maybe you did some pre-work in, in 2022. I'm not sure, but how big of a deal was it to build this lift in just the course of one off season? And how good does it feel to be ready to crack this thing open? Oh, it feels amazing. Not only just being able to build it in one summer to see one of our goals that we've been thinking about for really 10 years with the development of skiing at Whiteface come true. It's amazing. There is so much hard work that went into that lift from our team, from our contractors team. And it's the only one on the East Coast. You know, it's something that we're proud of. It's going to service us and our guests and and really change Whiteface in a great way. So we're beyond excited. You know, Aaron, I was skiing around at your sister mountain, Bel Air. So Olympic Regional Development Authority, for the listeners who are not familiar, runs three mountains in New York, runs Whiteface, it runs Gore, and it runs a smaller ski area called Bel Air down in the Catskills. And I was skiing around Bel Air, and I've been skiing pretty regularly at Bel Air for about the last decade. And they put in a new lift this year as well. And they've been just, if you hadn't skied there in five years, it would feel like a brand new ski area. I mean, that place is so nice and so renovated. It almost feels like a new ski area. And I think that Orta has been quietly upgrading all of its mountains in that same way. So I know that as big of a project as this lift was, it probably wasn't the only thing that you did at Whiteface this summer, Bell was telling me they put in 250 new snow guns this summer. So what what other upgrades can you tell us about headed into 2023 to 24 ski season since the notch is kind of stealing the thunder for everything else? Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of our biggest focuses the past few years, obviously there's been, there's been a lot of them, but without snowmaking and, and evolving in that world, all of it just, you can't put the puzzle together. So uh, we've, we invested in another over 150 guns this summer, new low E fixed towers um, on the mountain. And one of the things that we've been developing um, has been a, a plan to update our Olympic mountain. You know, a lot of this mountain was built, a lot of the infrastructure and a lot of what we're dealing with is from the 1980 Olympics and it's over 40 years old. So we've been really focusing on replacing a lot of that, a lot of electric lines. And and a lot of this stuff, it it doesn't make the headlines, right? But it'll take away those complaints and it'll, it'll, it'll let our staff sleep at night knowing uh, they aren't coming in at five in the morning to work on an, an old riblet lift. You know, those things go a long ways and they aren't the shiny bright toy that everybody likes from a, from a marketing perspective, but, you know, having that reliability for our staff translates to um, having a better product for our guest. And we also, you know, we've replaced, I was just thinking about it yesterday, over 15 miles of pipeline in the past couple of years, Victolic coupled pipeline that was here for the Olympics. So we were able to start our systems up and have them run and work. And you know, we invest in the maintenance in the off season and we want everything to be as smooth as it can go during go time. You know, I think white-faced skiers certainly do appreciate that, especially the frequent ones who have seen the transformations. And I, I would imagine there's no more frequent 
whiteface gear than you, Aaron. I mean, it's rare that I get to host someone who has worked at the same mountain for 25 years. I mean, that's just phenomenal. And we'll get into your career in a moment. Are you local to the area? Did you grow up skiing whiteface? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My father actually started working at Whiteface in the mid 80s. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So he was a ski patroller right after the Olympics. Um, you know, he he loved to ski and he was able to turn it into his career. And it, he's still a ski patroller at Whiteface. So oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I see my father at work every day. So uh, it's sort of weird being. Um, Are you his boss or? I, I don't, I'm not a direct supervisor of his um but uh yeah he's still a ski patroller so it's great to have him and i'll call him you know just being able to call my dad on the rate on the radio or like he's at a watch station somewhere on the mountain and i'd be like dad what's going on with this and he can he he can level with me you know it's just yeah (laughs) it's it's amazing yeah his uh his co-workers call him my kid but uh, (laughs) it's the opposite but So you grew up in the area and then your first job, as I mentioned, was freestyle coach back in 1998. Was that in fact your first job in skiing and, and what brought you to the mountain in a work capacity? It, it, you know, funny story on this one. My, my ski background, um, I started skiing, you know, in the early eighties, probably 81. I was around two years old and I grew up on a little road called Bear Town Road, and it's near Plattsburgh. And on the Bear Town Road, there's a little mountain called Bear Town, and it has a pommel lift and a T-bar lift, and they have night skiing. So I started skiing there, and my first job in the ski industry was when I was 14. I broke my thumb. My mom wouldn't let me go skiing with my dad at Whitefaced, and I just wanted to be there and the bear town gave me a little job selling stuff at the concession stand. Okay. <laughs> nice. My first job in the ski resort world was uh, at 14 selling hamburgers and soda at a small concession stand at a small ski area in Plattsburgh, near Plattsburgh, New York. But um, yes, my first, my first real job in the big scheme of things was as a freestyle coach in 1998. I was a freestyle ski athlete. Uh, I trained aerials and moguls. I moved up to Lake Placid my senior year of high school, and I went to a school called the National Sports Academy. And that was a place where you could go. You skied every day in the winter, and uh, you went to school in the afternoon. So every morning, we'd get on a bus. We'd go skiing. We'd train. We'd go to competitions on the weekends. I loved skiing. And after my competition phase for I competed in moguls and aerials, I just wanted to keep skiing. And that summer, Lake Placid has an amazing freestyle skiing training venue. Um, with We have a, a pool with water ramps that you train aerials in. So I trained there in the summers. And when I graduated high school and I moved on from the National Sports Academy, I went on that summer to coach kids. So um, we stayed at the Olympic Training Center and I, I would um, coach aspiring aerial athletes and that was my first real taste of skiing and coaching and all of that. And that year I knew I, I just didn't like the competition thing. It was traveling. It was standing in the cold, waiting for your runs. I just wanted to have fun. And I was given the opportunity to, to coach 
freestyle athletes. So I coach moguls and the rest is really history. I started in 1998 as a, as a New York Ski Educational Foundation coach and I was hooked. I loved coaching. I loved well, watching these kids. You know, I was still a little young and wild, but I had a bunch of kids to chase me around the mountain. It was super fun and I loved it. So it really doesn't get better than that. It, it's kind of funny now that I have my own little kids, it's a little bit like that, but um, yeah, I, I just loved it. I was hooked on just being at the mountain and, and, and uh, watching these kids develop. And that was my first real uh, experience of love for the ski resort and what we do. So maybe I'm drawing a line between things that don't exist, but the, but freestyle seems adjacent to free riding and park. And in the this era, 1998, was right in that confusing period where mountains started to have terrain parks, but a lot of times they were, quote, snowboard parks and skiers weren't allowed in. And, and I, I don't know what Whiteface's scene looked like at the time, but did you play any role in helping to normalize terrain parks? And, and did you ever get into coaching that side of things or were you strictly moguls freestyle you know in the beginning so in 1998 at whiteface we had snowboard parks right so we were not allowed in there it was strictly when the snowboarders weren't watching or patrol wasn't watching we would take our kids and we would go through the parks the snowboard parks um (laughs) right I, I like to think I had a big part in the change of that. I wrote a letter to the management at the time of the ski resort. And I said, how is this fair? Right. You know, th- how does this make sense that you can segregate the snowboarders and the skiers? It, it doesn't, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. All you're causing is a rift between the two groups and we should be together there. We it's, there's nothing that these snowboarders are doing that the skiers couldn't do. We all hit jumps, you know, at that time, there really weren't much for rails. It was all, you know, just snow features, but we all loved it. It was all part of sliding on snow. And, um, you know, it was really frustrating to me and used to get in trouble for it. So (laughs) (laughs) that next year it changed, which was, I like to feel like the letter that I wrote really got everyone kind of thinking why are we doing this? You know, we have this group of kids that are looking for an outlet. We can get them to stop getting angry, stop terrorizing the rest of the mountain, trying to build these <laughs> renegade jumps on the side of the lift towers and on right. the side of trees and you know, let's put them in a controlled environment. And that's what happened. It was awesome. <laughs> it, it's amazing. And it's so weird to think back on that time because I was fighting the same fight you were at the same time, but without any, any sort of microphone or, or, or power or communication line to those folks. So good on you for having a part in that evolution. And then you actually went on to manage terrain parks at Whiteface during that crucial period when, because terrain parks have evolved a lot. Like you said, back in the nineties, they were mostly just ramps kind of built up. There was always usually a half pipe. I don't know if there's a half pipe at Whiteface, but you rarely see one anymore, but just talk about your role as terrain parks manager and how you helped normalize that culture at Whiteface. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, as I mentioned before, I was an aerial coach. I have just a quick little story of part of my history a little bit. So 98, I was freestyle coach. I was uh, coming off of being an aerial athlete and, you know, we wanted to flip on the mountain. And I was a coach at the time. Inverted aerials were forbidden. And I started flipping out the mountain as a coach. Mm. I got Mm. fired. Um, I I then got hired in the terrain park in 2000. 
And right. at that time, inverted areas were still um, forbidden. But shortly after that, we pleaded our case. We're like, how is this any different? You know, you can go and try to spin as many times as you want, land on your head. Like, it's, it's all about controlling it, educating people on what they should be trying to do, you know, knowing your limits, knowing you shouldn't just go into these things not knowing what you're doing. So we were able to push our message to educate people instead of just tell them no, 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 no can't do this. We're taking your passes. No, let's talk to them about their limits, help them understand them and give them a, give them a path to being better. And that then worked. And we were able to lift that inverted aerial band. So that was 2000 ish. I was park director. You know, I, I started in this really getting into snow cats and around 2001 after you know, as one of the park guys in 2000, we had our groomers who, you know, they didn't ski. They were built in the parks, right? Yeah. They, they really didn't know proper angles, takeoff. You know, they don't know what an in run and a transition is. So I was able to move in there and help guide that world, you know, while I was just in the park department to help build safer terrain parks, safer and better terrain parks. So that evolution came pretty quick. And that really opened up the world of, of parks at Whiteface. We had a great team. We were all, you know, really diehard users of the mountain and had a passion for this building jumps with big equipment instead of a shovel in between trees that we threw some snow on the landing. <laughs> and it was really special for us. So, so you had the opportunity, so you had played a big part in helping modernize Whiteface in that respect and, and make it more of an experience that a modern kid who likes to free ride is probably looking for. And, and they're, as we all know, going to drive their parents and family vacation toward the mountains that accommodate that. So, so it sounds like you had a really busy decade there and had a lot of fun doing that. 2012, the opportunity comes up to lead Whiteface. How did you get that opportunity, Aaron? Why did it appeal to you? Well, you know, really when I was the operations manager, so when I made the shift from terrain park director to operations manager, that was huge for me. And just prior to that, in 2008, when I became full-time year-round, I really learned what a ski resort is. Uh, you know, as a skier, I was like, oh, this is great. We slide around on snow. We hit jumps. We make jumps. But until you really work at a ski resort in the summer, you don't know what it is. And we all came together. All the different departments would come together we had a core group of, you know, I think 30 people that, that worked year-round at the mountain at that time. We had a couple of venues that offered summer operations. So we ran the gondola, and we actually have a highway at the, to the top of the mountain that we operate in the summer. And we would all come together, and we would do this. We'd learn what each department does. We would help each department. We would go work in the trails department. We'd go work with the electric shop. And it was just awesome because I spent a lot of time in the trails department and just thinking about the work that we could do in the summer to make our experience better in the winter. It, it just, for me, it just clicked. And at that time, it was a lot of small scale stuff. I was like, oh, if we, you know, we put a couple tree logs over here in these glades, we'll be able to jump off it next January when they open. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to me, that was where my it. mindset was, you know, right. when I was 26 years old or so, but you know, just it 
developed and developed and I really was scared when I moved up from being the park director to when I became the operations manager. But while I was the park director, I really got to work closely with a lot of the teams in Lake Placid. I was a, the chief of course for like our World Cup events here. So I was chief of course for World Cup moguls. I was chief of course for World Cup skier cross, World Cup border cross. And I was comfortable with that team. And I got to see what not just Whiteface did, but what Orta did. And I was able to build some great relationships and I enjoyed the people that I would be working with if I moved up. And at that time, we our uh, assistant manager was Bruce McCulley and he had been there forever. He started right after the Olympics and I worked really closely with him developing Lookout Mountain. So every day I would meet with Bruce McCulley. He's the assistant manager, we would go on the, the old school GPS we had, we'd mark out some lines and another guy and I named Bart Hayes would, we went up the mountain, we put flags on what would become the Wilmington Trail. And we went down and we were tasked with flagging out the, another expert trail off the lookout pod. So we went down, we looked at all of our GPS with Bruce every morning, We would, and we went and followed the old growth of what then became Hoyt's High. So I got to work with them. We became very comfortable with each other. We became friends and Bruce got the opportunity to move up when um, then manager Jay Rand retired. And I was able to move up right with him. So I then became Bruce's second in charge as assistant manager. And after a couple years of doing it, it was really, really interesting to get more in depth in um, like lift maintenance world um, get more in touch with fleet grooming and really dive into these mini cities. You know, these ski resorts, they're mini cities. There's wastewater, there's water treatment systems, it, it, there's everything. So there's always just so much to learn. And, you know, that next step for me, I was fortunate to have, I think, three years while Bruce was the general manager to work with him and, and learn from him. And I, I just loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. I really wanted to guide the ship. I really loved what Orta is and still is, you know, that development of competitive athletes, the coordination that happens between Lake Placid and Whiteface and Wilmington and Whiteface. It's just, there's just so much to it and it's so exciting and it's, it's so fun really to me. So there's so many pieces of a ski resort that you have to appreciate and to have to learn in order to get up to that top job. I think there's an extra layer. I'd call it a legacy layer with Whiteface because of the stature of this mountain and the importance of this mountain historically and to skiing culture in general. It's the tallest mountain in the East. It hosted the Olympics. How heavy is that legacy? And as you consider as the leader of that place, how much does that not weigh on you, but but how much does that drive you to maintain that legacy of excellence that is Whiteface Mountain? Oh, it's it's hugely important. And for me, prior to like World University Games planning, which started a few years ago and culminated last year, I was really focused on trying to keep like some of that Olympic history while modernizing, right? Like the Olympics were 40 years ago at that time. We can't just rely on that. You know, to me, that's, I just, I felt like we needed to evolve a little bit, but the trick was 
keeping that history and it, and it always will be but through this process of the world university games that development and that planning and it really opened my eyes to who we were and what we can be and what what this means to more than just me more than just that skier but the whole community the whole state you know the the whole country you know when you think about things in a in in those terms like what we're doing is a is something that the world is looking at and we're representing the United States with what what's actually happening at Whiteface Mountain. Like, how cool is that, right? How could we ever think about leaving the Olympics behind? How could we ever not think about trying to do it again? And this community is is built on that, right? Like Placid is built on that Olympic winter games heritage starting in 32, right? And then it's really been at the top of our minds all the time. And for me, I let it slip a little bit, honestly, going into the World University Games. And I was able to get it back and really see that bigger picture, see the importance of that history, and just start to think about what it would mean to do it again, right? Like, how cool would that be? So are you thinking about it? Is there because there's been almost a billion dollars in modernization of order facilities over the past decade, or, or at least on the order of several hundred millions of dollars. And you just hosted the World University Games. We know that Salt Lake is likely to land the 2034 Winter Olympics. So I'm not sure that they would do it in the United States in back-to-back games, but lay this out for us. I mean, how seriously are you thinking about making another Olympic bid or, or at least encouraging the state of New York to do it with Whiteface and Orta as the leading sort of cheerleaders. Yeah, sure. To me, it's a dream. Me and so many people around us, that that's a dream. And we have been talking about it, you know, internally, our, our groups within the Olympic Authority. We already do this stuff, right? You know, the Olympic Authority is set up to preserve that Olympic history and, and promote it and develop it and make sure that we're lit, our venues are up to those highest standards. So for us to not think about doing it again, I think is a little crazy, honestly. And it, it's a dream. It's a dream of ours. You know, just that that Olympic spirit in Lake Placid is, it's unbelievable. Like if you've never been there, like you might not think about it, but you'll have a hundred kids there, little kids there skating on where the Miracle on Ice happened in 1980. You know, and those kids might not even know what that is or really put the, you know, understand the magnitude of what it did to sport at that time, but their parents do. And, you know, you'll be walking on Main Street next to Olympic bobsledders. You'll never even know it. But all of us, we, we all feel it. And, you know, it's a lot of what what we promote and what's important to us. So you know, we we would love to see it happen. 2038 is a long ways away. And something that I've learned, Stuart, is uh, it's also very political, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I've spent quite a bit of time reviewing it and looking at bids from other countries and what they look at. When they're looking at selecting Olympic cities, they're, they're going deep into what, what it is, you know, what the country is and you know, what's the approval rating of the people that live in that community? You know, it, it's a lot. And it also takes the the country itself supporting us. And 
we want to be there as a great partner to the USOPC and we want them to support us in the future to, to go after that Olympic dream. And we want to be able to, to be a part of it. And I can say that it would be a shining moment in my life to be a part of it behind my, my marriage and my children. I, I, I think about that, you know, I've been involved in a lot of major international competitions on, on development and planning and, and actual management of courses. And I, that, that spirit when they're here is just, it's as cool as it can get. So is it just a matter of selling the story? I mean, is Whiteface, and I, I, I don't want to ask you to speak for the surrounding community and their facilities so much, but with all of the effort that Orta has put in and all the money it's put into upgrading the mountain, you know, one, one problem going to the 1980 Olympics, they didn't know if their, if Whiteface was going to have enough snow and they almost moved some of the ski events to Quebec and they turned it around at the last minute, but obviously your snowmaking has evolved light years since then. Do you feel like Whiteface is in a state now where it could in fact host an Olympic games? I think we have some work to do, but I think when you look at places that can on the East coast of the United States, there are not many. And um, something that we've been, you know, kind of in investigating is, you know, what does a downhill look like at Whiteface? What is it? What does a downhill World Cup, downhill Olympics? What's it look like now? Uh, it's different than 1980, right? There's a lot of standards that have changed. There's all sorts of new homologation requirements. So, you know, that's probably the biggest hurdle for us to to overcome right now, and and we're investigating it because it's so important to us and. I like to feel and like to think that the World University Games was kind of a stepping stone to greater things, not to downplay what the World University Games are and were and, you know, community-wise and for the mountain. And But I like to think there's bigger things here for us. And I'd like to get the doors open to do more. And I think uh, when you look at what we have in Lake Placid with the Olympic venues, and the support from the communities of Wilmington, Lake Placid, the whole area. I want it to be a goal to go bigger. We should be looking at more and bigger events. And we are. So Olympics is a tough one. It happens every four years. It's very political. And the United States gets to nominate one candidate every four years, right? And I don't know that there's been an Olympics in the same country twice in consecutive Olympic years. So... That's a challenging one. And it's tough because that would be the earliest would be 1938 for Whiteface and, and Lake Placid. And, you know, that's a long ways away, but we, we can't lose sight. And if we can set our, our mountain up, our, our venues up for the future, I think that's our job, right? We need to set ourselves up for success moving forward. Yeah, I think you're certainly in a good position now. Let's, uh, let's shift back onto the upper mountain here, Aaron, as we said, you have upgraded three or replaced two lifts on the lower mountain, actually three lifts, Warhorse replaced two old lifts. So you've added three new lifts on the lower mountain over the past few years. So completely redone the beginner experience. Now looking at the upper mountain, what's your wish list? You have a whole bunch of lifts going, either going up to the upper mountain or on the upper mountain of various vintages. And what's your priority as you look ahead to potential upgrades for all these different lifts you have serving the upper mountain? Yeah, you know, our priority with the upper mountain lifts really right now is the little white face mountain run lifts. That configuration just doesn't work for us. It worked until the gondola was installed. So, you know, until 2000, that was the way up to the face trails, the expert skiing on the, the face of white face. And 
Um, now the gondola service is that. So we've seen an, the demand to have two lifts right there drop. So we're going to look at maybe not necessarily increasing our capacity from that area, but updating the, the lift and uh, having something that is reliable and gets people to the, to the face trails. We also don't see as many people on the, those expert trails as we used to too. So there isn't quite as much of an emphasis on, on that as there used to be. So, you know, I would say goal number one would be to update Little White Face Mountain Run. So that, that current configuration is, it's a double-double, so two side-by-side double chairs that share towers. One of them, Mountain Run, only runs up to Mid-Mountain. I'm saying this for the for the listeners. Uh, then Little White Face has a mid-station and goes quite a bit higher. It's about a 1,400-1,500 vertical foot lift. W- what would you consider there? A fixed quad with a mid-station, a high-speed quad? What, what sorts of machine are you considering for that line? And would it be the same line? Um, I think the line is... I think it's hard to stray from in that area. The upper part of that line is on a pretty steep cross hill. Uh, the lower part is kind of on the side of the mountain run trail, but I think updating that lift, all of its drive components, the communications, the terminals, I, I think that's something that would go a long way for us, just having that reliability. We don't see we don't see congestion in that area really. So, unless there's an issue with the lift, um, so I think really, I don't think we really need to look at capacity wise too much there. But I I do think it's important to look at reliability of the machine, and that's what we're doing right now is looking at the reliability. Um, we know that we have a lot of redundancy in that area, especially the mid station area. We have three lifts that bring you to the same location as the mid station on the little white face top of the mountain run chair and the top of the freeway lift they all essentially empty in the same spot plus you can get there from the gondola so when you actually look at how many ways you can get to the top of mountain run there's more (laughs) so that's that's a lot so we have a lot of backup in that area so i don't necessarily think we need more capacity i just think we need reliable capacity so uh, that's our thoughts on that Um, So that's number one. Number two, I dream of replacing the summit with a detachable quad. I think that's going to be great for our guests. The lift right now, it's, it's challenging. Its alignment is tough. That top terminal on load area is, there's just not a lot of room there. So we've come up with some pretty creative plans to accomplish our goal. And I'm hoping we can, we can do that in the next few years. So I think that's number two. And then I would say freeway. Freeway is number three. Important to our race program. We have a, an amazing race program. We've got a ton of history. We've got these big events that happen here. And uh, we want more. We want bigger events. And updating that lift is, I think, a piece of the puzzle to do that. So that's that's kind of our, our hit list right now. And it could change for sure. Um, <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen curveballs thrown at us pretty quickly when it comes to events. 2010, we stepped up and hosted the U.S. Nationals here because Alieska, I think a volcano erupted. And they, oh my gosh. It, so we were able to, um, you know, quickly move in and, and do that. And I, I think it, for us, can be an opportunity. So I, I think we should be able to do that. And we're looking at how to accomplish that with the lifts. 
So good upgrades there. So taking each of these in turn, when you're looking at the little white face mountain run double double, sounds like the configuration is okay. But what you want to do is just refurbish those machines, probably basically rebuild all the parts. Is that fair? Yeah, I think what we're looking at, and it could happen pretty quick here, is probably just having it be a double. One double with a mid-station unload, updated equipment. I think it could do the job. It's kind of funny, but there really is something to that double lift that's comforting. It's it's a little different. I, we were talking about it the other day internally, just kind of like the Mad River Glun single chair, right? You know, there's there's it doesn't make any sense, right? Like, you know, it's capacity wise, but there's just something about those lifts that are special to people in the area. It's a little more comfortable. It's a little more homey and it, it does the job. So yeah, I think that's, that's what we're looking at there. I know there's a lot of hall double chair fans that will be happy to hear that. So then Summit Quad that you mentioned, I mean, that's a big lift for a fixed grip nowadays. It's 1,852 vertical feet. Talk a little bit more about the sort of lift you'd like to see there, if it's a high-speed quad or something else. And then where you're thinking about the new load and land that could maybe ease that unload, which like you said, is very tight. Yeah. So what we're what we're thinking about is a detachable quad in that area. And when you're trying to figure out how to put a detachable terminal in a location that has about 60 feet of flat, it's, it is definitely, it's definitely challenging. It's, it requires a lot of steel, but um, you know, we've got some really good eyes on it and uh, we have a concept that we think can work up there with uh, really it's the top terminal. We're not as concerned with the bottom terminal. We have some flat area. We have a little bit of maneuverability down there, but we just started thinking about, you know, maybe we can do a 90 degree unload so that you're not getting off the lift, trying to turn, bunching people up. And we think that could work. So, you know, we're definitely thinking that direction and and, uh, hopefully we can get some support for it in the next couple of years. Yeah, they did that at Hunter and it works really well for, because that's obviously a very congested mountain and they dropped that six pack and they, and you do that little 90 degree turn right at the end. And it's really slick. They did a really nice job with that. As far as freeway, do you see the same thing as Little Whiteface, where you're going to do an upgrade and keep that old double chair in place? Or do you think that that's a place where you'd like to see a new lift? Well, when you think about, when we talk about our our aspirations to do bigger and better, it's an expectation that you have a high-speed lift servicing your race train. You know, at elite-level events, it's an expectation. So I think we would have to think that way if we were going to going to upgrade that lift. We haven't explored it too much yet, but we know that it's an expectation to, to have high speed access to your race venue. So um, we also have, you know, we have a couple projects in the mix to support, you know, increasing the capacity of that lift as well. You know, I think it's important to try to tie the public in to that a little more too. We've got some approved plans for an intermediate trail off the top of the freeway lift, which I think would tie in great with a new detachable quad. So it's kind of nice that we have both of those things in our hat here that we've been thinking about and looking at developing and thinking about the next stages of Whiteface. You know, the past five, eight years have been a real whirlwind of investment and where do we go next, right? Um, you know, we've, we've touched pretty much almost every lift on the mountain. We have plans to have pretty much every lift on the mountain updated. Next, I feel like it's, it's the trail world. We've, and we've, we've done 
two major lodge renovations and one brand new lodge, right? <laughs> so right, right. it's been a lot. Yeah. So what, what's next? You know, I think that's tying the freeway into another intermediate offering that could also be serviced by the gondola and possibly the little white facelift is a great opportunity for us. So on the subject of freeway, looking at your 2018 unit management plan, there was a, a new freeway lift envisioned that actually went out of the base and up to close to the current terminus. Now, that unit management plan did not have the warhorse lift that you ended up building there. So are, are you still considering a top to bottom line for freeway? Or do you think that warhorse is going to serve as a gateway to freeway, even if you do upgrade it to a detach? Um, you know, that's been kicked around a couple of times. I can say we have not pursued the extension of the top of freeway any further. Really, it was a planning concept that we put out there and we don't necessarily put a lot of emphasis in that anymore, um, extending that lift up. It has been talked about extending the freeway down, but I feel like the recent investments in replacing the old bear lift with the warhorse lift uh, meets that purpose. And it's nice having the warhorse there as well, because we do, we do have a great option for um, spectators now. Uh, mm -hmm. We can get mm -hmm. spectators to the finish area of our race events. So that lift is important to us and it's, it's new. It works great. And um, I think it services that terrain very well. So right now I don't, we haven't really talked a whole lot about bringing the, the freeway down to the bottom anymore. So since with the, with the update to the, the bear lift, I think we're in a good spot. So. You know, it's funny, the ump is not that old and it has a bunch of proposed lifts. And the one that you did build was Falcon Flyer, but Warhorse wasn't on that ump and neither was the notch. So just take us through how your thinking has evolved since you published that document back in 2018 and how we ended up with pretty different lifts than what were outlined on that plan. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, just just that plan too is it's it's kind of funny because starting in the '90s, we've really seen plans for white face development, and some of you know some of it hasn't come true, some of it has. But you know how we ended up changing it from 2018 to this year with say the notch. You know, a lot of that revolved around just how special Bearden has become to us, and in 2018 that. Bear Den development and and with the the planning for the 2018 amendment, we hadn't seen its impact yet. So that impact on Bear Den has really really changed our thoughts on a couple of those lifts, and that's kind of how we ended up where we are now. Is just in those in that five year span, it's it's very different. I'm wondering if there's a theme behind the naming of these lifts: Falcon Flyer, the Notch, Warhorse. Anything you can tell us about the history of those names and if they're connected in any way? I wouldn't say they're directly connected. They do have meaning, each of them. The Falcon was a challenge. That was that was probably one of the harder ones to name. You know, what do you want a lift to stand for, right? It's Is it fast? Is it crazy? Is it... We don't want to go with some of the nicknames I've heard some, from some of the lifts, but, you know, Falcon was just, we like the Falcon. There's Falcons around here, and we felt Flyer was a was a great closing to the lift name. So that's kind of how we ended up with that, really. It was an internal thing. Warhorse was also a challenge, but when you look at how Warhorse got its name, it has a lot of significance to Whiteface. So Andrew Wybreck is um, 
He's a two-time Olympic medalist. He's uh, from Whiteface Mountain, two-time Super G Olympic medalist. And his nickname is the Warhorse. Mm, okay. That lift brings you right to the finish of the race venue. So we were able to kind of honor Whiteface, what Andrew has done to Whiteface. And we've also created the uh, Andrew Weibrecht finish arena. So it ties in to that for us. Um, you know, that Warhorse name is an homage to Andrew and what he's done for Whiteface and to celebrate his success as a ski racer. So he's a hometown boy that did big things and we're proud of it. So uh, the notch, the notch is, the notch is, a, was interesting. Um, the name really came from our then CEO, Mike Pratt. So the name of the road from Lake Placid to Wilmington is Route 86, but locals call it the notch. And what is the notch? It's this windy road that brings you right to Whiteface. And what is the notch lift? It, it's this interesting chairlift that has a bend in it. So, you know, it kind of made sense to us to call it that. So we like it and, and it's grown on us. So we, we really like calling it the notch. That's really cool history. I appreciate you sharing those stories with us. You know, uh, you said you were involved, Aaron, with the development of Lookout Mountain. And this is a really cool piece of terrain opened in 2008. And it's served by a triple chair, pretty long for a triple chair in the east, 1,560 vertical feet. Knowing what you know now, was that the right lift for Lookout Mountain? Um, I will say I wasn't necessarily part of the decision making on that. I was really focusing on the trail side. I do think it serves its purpose. If we could go back, I'm not sure that we would change it. But if we could go forward and we ever did, I would say it could be a pretty awesome quad. You know, we've got two quads here that are fixed grip. And if we could have another common lift that was a fixed grip quad that shared some of the same components, it helps our uh, helps our team and helps what we do quite a bit. So I think it we don't see congestion there and it's a reliable lift for us. So I think it does the job right now. How much potential is there to cut more trails off a of lookout? We have an approved expert trail over there. So... What we did in 2000, I want to say 12-ish, was um, really we had approval for two pretty big expert trails on the Whiteface side of, of uh, Lookout Mountain. And then we had the, the intermediate trail, the Wilmington Trail, which is a monster, and some glades. So what we did is we, we cut the, the expert trail and we named that Hoi Tai. That was actually a trail that was cut off of Marble Mountain in the 50s. So pretty cool history there. It used to be called the Cloud Spiller Trail before Whiteface was even a ski resort. That trail was there. And there was another expert trail that crossed it. So it started a little bit further down from the top of the lift terminal down the Wilmington Trail. And the approved trail drops in on the other side of the lift line, goes down the this pretty steep gut. It would be a pretty awesome expert trail crosses the lift line, crosses Hoi Tai, and then we gladed the bottom of that trail and called it Rand's Last Stand. So we have the upper part of that approved expert trail left in the development of, of Lookout Mountain. So we have something in our pocket over there for the future, which is great. Okay. Well, I, I, and you just said that now that you've done so much work on the lifts and the snowmaking, 
you really want to focus on the trails. What would it take to start to cut some of these trails? We've got a couple small ones that we're looking at for next summer. We've got this little small trail called the Yellow Dot that's a, I, th- I think it's a great little trail. It connects an intermediate trail to another intermediate trail and it's serviced by the gondola. So it, it for people that know Whiteface, it connects the Victoria to the Lower Skyward and it's kind of a locals staff cut right now that it just sneaks through the woods. But we have a plan to to make that a little wider and a, a little more accessible to really get lower skyward on the map as a trail off the gondola. And I think that'll be a good improvement. The big game changer is that intermediate trail off of the approach at the top of the freeway lift. That that thing I've been thinking about for a lot of years and uh, it's gonna be a pretty massive undertaking and I'd like us to get it on the radar in the next couple of years. And I'd love it if it tied in with the replacement of the, the freeway lift. So one big trail consideration when you're cutting new trails at Whiteface is that the state constitution actually limits the total trail mileage on Whiteface, Gore, and Bel Air. How much of a consideration is that, Aaron? How does that whole process work? Oh, it's a major consideration. Anytime we propose any trail work, anything that even, even widening in a trail requires a unit management plan amendment. So we have to watch it very closely. Uh, we have also within that state land master plan and the that's kind of helps guide us to what we do and how we manage our terrain. In our agreement with the state, basically, we have set limits of how wide trails can be. So Whiteface can have X amount of X amount of miles of trails, zero to 80 feet, X amount of miles of trails, 80 to 120 feet, X amount of miles, 120 and wider. So those are things we look at, but really the stickler here is that 25 miles of trails and we're pushing that limit right now. So with our trail development, laid out in the unit management plans, we, I believe, have three-tenths of a mile left to develop that white face. So we stay in those parameters and we're not there yet. You know, we're not really pushing those boundaries. Just the topography of white face is really challenging. Um, So it's hard to really branch out uh, without developing new base areas and new lift new trail pods serviced by lifts and but we still do have enough to keep ourselves busy for the next 10 15 years that's for sure (laughs) do do glades count as part of that mileage aaron unfortunately yes okay so so gore has really built out an expansive glade network you have built quite a few glades at whiteface but fewer than your sister mountain is this something you want to do more of? And if so, where on the mountain would be a good place for glading? Right now it's challenging with those parameters that we have with the 25 miles of skiing to really create new glades. What we've been focusing on the past couple of years is really making sure what we have is better. And I feel like our staff and our trail crew last fall really made a pretty big impact in what our Glade offering was. And then we coupled that with uh, our our uh, patrol really getting after it last year, getting Glades open. And they somehow managed to hold quite a bit of snow last year, even though the weather was all over the place. I, I can't remember a year where we skied the Glades as much as we did, honestly. So as far as new development goes, we don't have too much on our radar in the Glades world. But 
we want to make what we have better. So speaking of terrain that is not all open as often as you'd like, but was open a good little bit last year is the slides. Now, this is an awesome chunk of terrain. Aaron, tell us about the slides for folks who are not familiar with them and what makes them unique as uh, ski train in the East. Yeah, the slides are, uh, you know, they're something very different that isn't really found in the East. They're basically, you're right around tree elevation and we're on a very steep granite mountain. So Wayface is just a big, big rock of granite. So the slides are their inbounds off-piece terrain that's accessed by a little goat path and they're really prone to avalanches. Um, it's a unique thing that we have to deal with. Like we have to have avalanche certified patrollers that are managing and mitigating that avalanche terrain. But when that is open, it is, it's a lot like uh, bull skiing out West, really. It's big open terrain, steep. There's natural ice waterfalls in the middle of some of the slides. There's, you know, cliffs you have to navigate through. And uh, it all funnels down to a nice little trail at the bottom. And um, when we can have those open, it is, it's something special for us. And it's really just something unique you, you don't find at a lot of places in the East. And you actually, to go in there at certain points, have to have avalanche equipment, right? Yeah. Yep. There's, we, we operate it at a couple of different levels. So, you know, we have, we have one level where it's closed. You're not allowed in there. Our first opening is more of a managed opening, and it's when there is, you know, moderate avalanche risk. We go in, you know, we assess the situation. A, a lot of it's about safety, Stuart. You know, can patrol safely rescue someone from this terrain? And a lot of that's on us. You know, we have to train our staff to be able to do this. You know, if they want it and they, they want to be a part of it, we need to be able to rescue them. So... You know, that first level of opening, there is some moderate, mild avalanche risk. And we do require people to have a, an avalanche beacon, a shovel and a probe with them and a buddy. And we test it. We make sure they their equipment's working and we let them in there. And when we get open on that on that status, it's it's pretty special. It's nice because we have invested people, invested skiers and snowboarders. You know, really, when you open the floodgates to the slides, it's it's a challenge. Do you have to limit the number of skiers that you let in? It's such a game. You know, we try to manage the amount of people that are in there, and we want to make sure that they're of the right caliber. And it's that's the hard part. You know, we will send them off to go ski a different trail before they come to the slides. You know, like we'll st we'll stand up there and we talk to everyone. You know, we want to make sure that they understand what they're getting themselves into, uh, especially the new people. You know, the new people that haven't been in there, we always, always, always recommend they go in there with someone that, that has been in there before. Because like I said, you do, you end up at on cliff bands that you can't get around. You know, if you have never experienced that, you really want to be there with somebody that knows what to do. And while they may not be big, when you're standing on top of an eight foot ledge looking down and there's trees all around you, it's, it's kind of scary. So <laughs> yeah, managing that terrain is a challenge because we don't, we don't want to tell people no, they can't go in there, but we also want to make sure that we keep it open. And the amount of effort that it takes to bring a 
patrol toboggan down the slides is is substantial. It it'll shut the program down for a couple hours while we get in there. Belay um, patrol sleds down over icy waterfalls. You know, so it takes a lot of hands. It takes a lot of skill to rescue someone. And that's really the driving force. How many days were you able to open the slides last season? I think it was about 15. That's a lot. Yeah, it was a it was a really good spring over there. Our patrol was aggressive. The terrain was great. We created a new little route for people to go in. Um, One of the one of the challenges for us operationally is the the route to the slides is right across where you get off the summit lift and the summit lift as we were talking about before the top doesn't have a lot of room and we're you know historically we were blocking off taking an extra six feet seven feet from that unload area of the lift so we we were able to find an alternate route in there and it's helped us out a lot all right aaron i want to just zoom out here a little bit more you know like i said you've done a really good job of rebalancing the mountain to favor not favor, but to give a really good experience to novice skiers. It's a really great family mountain now. Nowhere to stay on the mountain. Why is that? And could that ever change? Not without a constitutional amendment could that ever change. So we are in the wild forest preserve of the Adirondacks, and we are not allowed to build overnight housing on our property. So the dynamic is a very interesting one for us. This is where Lake Placid and Wilmington really come into play with our success. Not being able to build that whole overnight village like other um, resorts can do, it, it's a challenge for sure. We, we would love to do it, but you know our mandate doesn't allow us to. All right, Aaron, last thing for you here today. I'm really curious about multi-mountain passes and, and white faces participation. I hear all the time folks wishing that the Orta Mountains were on the Icon Pass or the Indy Pass. And Whiteface was, in fact, along with Goran Belair, a member of the Max Pass, which was the predecessor to the Icon Pass. And Altera kind of cherry-picked who they took off of Max Pass, and the Max Pass went away. Did Altera invite Whiteface, Gore, Belair to the Icon Pass? Um, no, we didn't get invited to that at that time. Unfortunately, we we really liked the Max Past, um, and we would have loved to have been a part of that. You know, it really we it exposed the Boston market to Whiteface. You know, that was the that was the benefit of the Max Pass. Hmm. So that worked out well for us. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's not that's not on the table anymore. If Icon had offered, do you think that Order would have taken it in 2018? Yeah, I think they probably would have. Yep. How about now? Um, you know, we're always looking for new opportunities. There's definitely some, some legal issues that need to be worked through with these things. And especially being a state agency, there's, there's a little bit more that we need to worry about, but we're always looking for an opportunity. And if our team could get together and, and, uh, join, I mean, we would support it, but it's not on the table right now, but I think just the history of the max pass was great. From an outsider's point of view, it seems like the ski three pass is going really well for you. I, I would think that the concern around Icon is perhaps cannibalizing ski three sales because if you got seven days at Whiteface Score in Bel Air, uh, that would give you a pretty good incentive to go Icon rather than ski three, which costs about the same amount. What about the Indy Pass, Aaron, that offers two days at each of its mountains? There are quite a few small 
multi-mountain owners on the Indy Pass, including some in New York. Is this something that you've considered? Um, we've talked about it, definitely. And it all goes back to that, the details. You know, the the Ski 3 Pass for Orta has, has really blown up, to be honest, Stuart. Um, Core and Bel Air, their numbers are really impressive to us. And their growth over the past few years is is very substantial. And we really need to take those calculated risks with these things. But like I said before, we're always open for opportunity and we're always looking into it. And we're always trying to, to figure out new programs to, to get more people to our mountains, especially you know, those, those new demographics that we don't, we don't hit with the daily ticket sale. So um, yeah, we, we look at it and our group is always considering it. All right, Aaron, with that, I will let you go. I know you got a lift opening to prep for tomorrow. I cannot thank you enough for giving me all this time, particularly in December, the busiest time of the year for you. So thank you very much. I wish you the best of luck with everything at Whiteface, and I'm looking forward to coming up and riding that new lift this year. Well, give me a call, Stuart. I'll go with you. It'll be fun. That's Aaron Kellett general manager of Whiteface Mountain, New York. Aaron, that was just terrific. Listeners have been busting down my door to get Whiteface in the pod since day one, and I am so, so glad and grateful that we can finally make that happen. Thank you very much, Aaron, and the team at Orta for making that one happen. And thank you all very much for listening. That will be the last episode of 2023, but 2024 is going to be big. Northeast, I've got Sunday River, Camelback, and Okemo in the queue. Elsewhere, I have conversations booked with the leaders of Big Sky, Montana, Mount St. Louis, Moonstone, Ontario, the Great Buck Hill, Minnesota, Teton Pass, Montana, Red Mountain and Panorama, BC, Mount Bachelor, Oregon, Sugar Bowl, California, Mission Ridge and Bluewood, Washington, and the return of the great Alan Hensroth, Chief Operating Officer of Arapaho Basin, Colorado. There will be plenty more, of course, and you can always view the upcoming schedule on stormskiing.com. And you can also visit stormskiing.com to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter and ensure that you get those new podcasts the moment they're live. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers receive podcasts seven full days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter, slash X, Instagram, or threads at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.